Christchurch, New Malden, Sunday the 24th of December 2023, 11 o'clock service. David Taylor speaking on Why is Augustus's census in the Christmas story? We've been looking at why certain elements are in the Christmas story. And today we are looking at why Augustus's census is there. Now on the surface, it all seems very straightforward. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone went to his own town to register. Looks simple enough, but this is probably the most controversial part of the whole Christmas story for two reasons. One reason has to do with the second sentence of this. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. The problem is that Herod the Great died in 4 BC. So Jesus must have been born by then. But Quirinius became governor of Syria in 6 AD. Luke has only just made much of telling Theophilus that he wanted to write an orderly account of everything that took place concerning Jesus and to write an exact account of what happened so that Theophilus might know the certainty of the things that he has been taught. And here we have Luke's first historical reference point. Caesar Augustus' requirement that all the world should be enrolled, an enrolment that was made whilst Quirinius was governor of Syria. And this historical reference point appears to be out by a, a matter of 10 years or more. So how do we explain this? Well, when I was a student, the Christian Union encouraged people to read what was a standard text on this and other issues. It was a book called The New Testament Documents, Are They Reliable?, written by F.F. F. Bruce. I still have my copy here. It was 95 pence in those days and published by Intervarsity Press. I don't know, has anybody else read it? Anybody read it? Oh, oh quite a few, one or two, take it, excellent. Now, one of the issues that F.F. F. Bruce delves into is this very matter. He argues that it is possible that when Quirinius took up office in Syria in AD 6, this was in fact the second occasion on which he served there as imperial legate. Others have suggested that Josephus got his dates wrong for when Quirinius was governor of Syria. Others have suggested that Luke just made a historical error. History books do contain mistakes, and if so, this would be one which has no bearing on the truth of what Luke is actually writing about in his gospel. A few years ago, a theologian at Tyndale House in Cambridge, David Instone Brewer, published a further suggestion in the December edition of Premier Christian Magazine that year. He suggested that when it says, in those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world, the words, in those days, refer back to the previous verse at the end of chapter 1, where it says, and the child grew and became strong in spirit, referring to John the Baptist, 
and he lived in the desert until he appeared publicly to Israel. So in those days, Jesus also grew and became strong in spirit and with his mother and father returned to the place of his birth in Bethlehem to be enrolled in the census which took place when Quirinius was governor of Syria sometime after 6 AD. Do I hear gasps of horror? Do we have to rewrite the Christmas cards of Mary, redraw them, the Christmas cards of Mary and Joseph heading towards Bethlehem on a donkey and have Jesus with his younger half-brothers and sisters in tow? Well, David Instonbrough suggests that Mary and Joseph would have been to Bethlehem before to get married at Joseph's family house. And his family would not have been at all pleased to discover that Joseph's bride-to-be was heavily pregnant with a child that wasn't Joseph's. The original New International Version, the red one that we have used for many years, this one here, translates verse 7 as saying, She, Mary, wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. However, the new NIV, the blue one, this this translates the verse, She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. Now, David Instone Brewers argues that the word cataluma is better translated as guest room rather than inn. And he argues that the reason there was no guest room available for Mary and Joseph was that Joseph's parents were so horrified at Joseph's choice of bride, already fully pregnant by someone else, that they were not welcome in their guest room. There was no guest room available for them. So she had to give birth in the family stable downstairs. Further shock, horror. What do we do with all those children's nativity plays about innkeepers telling Mary and Joseph that they haven't any room? Instead, the story seems to be about some almighty family row about Joseph's choice of bride. Remember, this is likely to be the first time that Joseph's parents had met. Mary had met Mary from Nazareth. We are not having this birth in our respectable family home, thank you. Mary and Joseph have brought disgrace on our family. Well, this is all very thought-provoking stuff and puts a possible new perspective on the nativity story. However, my problem with David Instone Brewer's interpretation is that there doesn't appear to be any particular reason for introducing a brief story about Jesus, aged 10 or more, returning to Bethlehem with his parents and presumably with his younger half-brothers and sisters in order to be registered for a census while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And the story then immediately seems to revert to Mary and Joseph's first visit there all those years earlier. So I think the traditional version of the Christmas story is still in fairly safe hands. Tom Wright has come up with another explanation for this controversial part of the Christmas story. As I'm sure you will know if you've been attending the Paul course, he has done his own translation of the New Testament, and we used that earlier for the New Testament here. Listen very carefully to his translation of these key verses. At that time, a decree was issued by Caesar Augustus. The whole world was to be registered. This was the first registration 
before the one when Quirinius was governor of Syria. So everyone set off to be registered, each to their own town. Do you notice the difference? This was the first registration before the one when Quirinius was governor of Syria, not while Quirinius was governor of Syria. So how does Tom Wright manage to get away with that? Well, let's let him explain in his own words. The Greek word protos, with a genitive, as in this case, can mean before rather than the first. In other words, there may have been a census before the Quirinius one, which would then fit comfortably with Jesus being born in the reign of Herod the Great. We can see where the confusion lies if we consider the word prototype, which comes similar to the word protos, which is used in that passage there. A prototype is something which is made first, but also one which is made before any other copy. Normally, whether protos means before or the first makes no difference. As, for example, in the word prototype, we've got the example up there of a prototype car there, which uh, made before all the mass production takes place. But here in Luke's gospel, it does make a massive difference. Now, I have no idea which of these various explanations is the correct one, but for my money, I think I would go for Tom Wright's interpretation. In eternity, we'll find out, although Tom Wright's is the only English translation I could find of this verse, which resolves this problem in this way. This was the first reg registration before the one when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And uh, just in case you're wondering how Tom Wright translates the phrase, because there was no room for them in the inn, well, here it is. Tom Wright says, because there was no room for them in the normal living quarters. Sorry, innkeepers. But fascinating as it all is, none of this is the main point. The main point is that Luke is talking about a real historical event which took place at a real point in time. More than that, Theophilus would have remembered that census, even though it would have been decades ago. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria or before Quirinius was governor of Syria. Oh, yes, do I remember that census? The chaos that it produced. There were inns full of people traveling to register, not only in Bethlehem, but all over the Roman world. And Luke, you're saying that this is the point in time and history when God chose to come down to this earth to change the world forever, to be born in the utter lowliness of a feeding trough, as Tom Wright translates the word manger, because there was no room for them in the inn, guest room, live, normal living quarters? Well, that is the first controversy in these two verses, all to do with whether the Greek word protos should be translated here as the first or as before. Oh, the things we get het up about, but don't worry, Luke reassures Theophilus at the start of his gospel that I myself have fully investigated everything from the beginning, and I'm sure Luke means it. The other controversy in these verses about Caesar Augustus is rather more subliminal and hidden. 
I think it can be best illustrated by an event which happened on the 7th of February, 1601. On that date, the Lord Chamberlain's Men, which was Shakespeare's theatre company, put on a performance of Richard II. Nothing unusual in that, you might think. A patron of the arts had paid them 40 shillings to do it. Again, nothing unusual in that. But the next day, the Earl of Essex mounted a rebellion against the Queen. And it was the Earl of Essex who had paid Shakespeare's company to put on that performance of Richard II. Uh, for those of you who don't know, Richard II is a play about Bolingbroke who successfully led a rebellion against Richard II and became Henry IV. Here's the famous scene in Shakespeare's play where Richard II and the future Henry IV are both sparring for the crown, vying to see who will let go of it first. Now the point was subliminal and hidden, but not lost on the ailing and elderly Elizabeth I, who was later reported to say, I am Richard II, know ye not that? And the Lord Chamberlain investigated his own theatre company to find out to what extent the Lord Chamberlain's men had been complicit in the Earl of Essex's rebellion. Fortunately, he came to the conclusion that they had no idea why they were being paid to put on Richard II that day, but the Earl of Essex was executed. Now we have a, a similar subliminal message here. At that time, a decree was issued by Augustus Caesar. The whole world was to be registered. Uh, this again is Tom Wright's translation, and I think it gets across the force of what is said. It's a public announcement. The whole world is to be registered. Most translations say something like Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world, which tends to lose out on the force of that uh, public announcement. And the word Roman is added as a means of explaining to people who Caesar Augustus was. But as far as Augustus was concerned, it was the whole world. The whole world is to be registered. Caesar speaks and everyone moves. It doesn't matter how much upheaval this causes, how many inns will be all over his world will be full and have no room because of what he says, everyone must obey. No doubt he thought of himself as all powerful. He was the adopted son of Julius Caesar and after Caesar's murder, Augustus claimed Julius Caesar to be divine. So Augustus styled himself as the son of God and the savior of the world. Peace at last had come to the Roman world after the civil wars of Brutus and Mark Antony and he brought Pax Romana, the Roman peace to the empire. The temple of Janus stood in the Roman Forum and its gates were closed whenever there was peace throughout the entire Roman world. And this happened three times whilst Augustus was Caesar. All this was a pale shadow of the peace that Jesus brought. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there shall be no end, Isaiah had said. And Mary in the Magnificat sang, he has put down the mighty from their seat 
and has lifted up the humble and meek. The peace that Jesus brings is the inner peace of a transformed life, not the external peace of a controlling despot. And the way in which God achieves this is by acting in a most surprising way. Caesar Augustus thought that he could speak and the whole world obeyed. No doubt he was very proud of that and very proud when somebody finally brought him the results of this census and told him how many millions of people were under his sole command. But the God who is King of kings and Lord of lords and who will reign forever and ever had other plans. A seemingly insignificant plan of which the great Caesar Augustus would have been totally unaware, and yet a plan which would ultimately be far more important than Augustus's plan to register the whole world. The plan of the real supreme ruler of the world was to use this universal census to cause one young girl to arrive at Bethlehem on exactly the day when she would give birth so that a prophecy could be fulfilled. It doesn't seem much, but if Caesar Augustus had not commanded that everyone in the world be registered, then one seemingly insignificant girl would not have been in Bethlehem at exactly the right moment for Micah's prophecy to come true. In that humble manger, a light had come into a dark world. And that night, the light spread to the lowliest of people, a group of shepherds. So God moves in yet another surprising way. The angel of the Lord proclaimed a message of great joy to all the people. <clears throat> Caesar Augustus's message to all the people was, you are all to be counted. The message to the shepherds for all the people was that a saviour has been born to you this day in the city of David. He is the Messiah, the Lord. So here's another reason why I rather like Tom Wright's translation of Luke chapter 2. His version makes it clear that the opening verse could be read as an imperial proclamation. At that time, a decree was issued by Caesar Augustus. The whole world was to be registered. Imagine a herald making the announcement, the whole world is to be registered. And contrast that with, hark, the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king. The angel's message was a message of joy to all the people. No, a message of great joy to all the people. Caesar Augustus's message to all the people brought no joy, just massive inconvenience, and no doubt was linked to the need to pay tax to this unwelcome government. The angel's message to the shepherds was that a saviour has been born to you in the city of David. He was indeed the saviour, able to save all those who trust in him, to transfer them from the darkness and the hopelessness of a life not knowing why we are living on this planet, to one of rich joyfulness and meaning and purpose. Augustus was the saviour 
only because he had brought to an end the civil war with Brutus and Antony and had established an empire that was largely not at war. The angel's message was that this saviour, who is Christ the Lord, would be found born in a manger. The emperor Augustus would have scoffed at humility, keen to show his absolute power. In the bleak midwinter, a stable place sufficed the Lord God Almighty, Jesus Christ. And when the heavenly host suddenly appeared in the skies, they sang, glory to God on earth, and on earth, peace to all those on whom his favour rests. And that peace with God came through the reconciliation of God with man through the cross of Christ. Caesar Augustus's peace came through the imposition of his own iron will and refusal to tolerate any opposition. So God was sending a subliminal message to the Augustus's Caesars of this world. He has put down the mighty from their seat and exalted the humble and meek. And his kingdom, which seemed so insignificant that first Christmas night, a message to just a few shepherds, it grew as they spread the word about what had been told them concerning this child. When the shepherds had seen the baby, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. And his kingdom continued to grow and grow like that river flowing out from under the temple that we read about in our first lesson in Ezekiel. Until now, Caesar Augustus's empire has long since passed away. And Pax Romana is long since dead and gone. And the Roman Empire has long since vanished into dust. But of the increase of his government and of peace, there shall be no end. It's a kingdom that has grown to cover a world that is far bigger than Augustus could ever have imagined. And a kingdom where he, Jesus, shall reign forever and ever and ever. Alleluia, alleluia, amen, as Handel says. So let's pray. Lord, we thank you that on that first Christmas night, light came into the darkness of our world and that since then that light has grown and grown until it now spreads across the entire world. Help us to allow that light to shine in our hearts so that many more people still living in darkness may discover for themselves the light of life in Christ. In Jesus' name. Amen.